0: From Noble Robot on East Hennepin Avenue in Super Smooth, Minneapolis, this is Nice Games Club, the show where nice game devs talk gaming and game development. I'm Ellen Burns-Johnson, and I make nice games. I'm Steve McGregor, and I make nice games. And I'm Arthur Croy, I too make nice games. In this episode, we talk with Nina Murata, level designer and encounter designer at High Moon Studios to discuss, well, level design and encounter design. So if everyone's ready, let's start. Hi, Nina. Hi, (laughs) 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 thanks for joining us at the
1: end of your day yeah of course i'm happy to be here
2: one of the things that we um were really excited about when we uh invited you on the show was uh level design is such a specific field within game design Mm -hmm. that i think a lot of game designers think they could do they could pull off but probably don't realize how little they actually know right and so it is exciting for us um because we've played the role each of us of of you know, generalists and, and, and also been forced into specific roles. But I don't think any of us have any ex- real experience in like, level design as a, as a field, Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. even if we have done some level design. So we're really excited to have you here to offer that, uh, I, I would say, more formal perspective. And so not to put too much pressure on you, but we're like all just very pumped. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because it's a topic we've talked about a lot on the show, but mm-hmm. we haven't been able to focus on it uh, with someone who, you know, knows, knows the, the field. So I hope listeners are just as excited.
3: Yeah. Um, so Nina, can you, uh, give listeners a bit of an introduction on yourself?
1: Yeah. So, um, I'm Nina Murata. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and I am a associate level designer at High Moon Studios, which is, um, you know, part of the Activision publishing family. I work in Call of Duty and I specialize in, um, Single player encounter design, but I'm currently working on multiplayer encounter design.
3: Cool, cool. That's exciting stuff. Um, so I guess I'm curious what hmm, how what work goes into level design. I guess and encounter design. Uh, cause I I mean I've done that myself, but like I'm not, you know, I I I don't get paid to do it. <laughs> Someone didn't hire me specifically yeah. to do this thing. Like- so so I'm curious, like, how would you describe? Your expertise,
2: I suppose. Yeah. You know, where are like, the boundaries? And yeah.
0: what's your day like? I'm I'm also really curious, like, okay, so like if this is your specialty, what do you do in the morning and what do you do, you know, when you're interfacing with your colleagues? Yeah. Also, there's a cat. I just want to point out there's a cat <laughs> in your room, <laughs> which I didn't see at first. I don't know if the cat snuck in there before like right after we started the call, but I just feel like everyone needs to know. Dale would be disappointed. His name, name is, Kelso. is Kelso. Kelso? Is Kelso? <laughs> yes, we <are>. Yeah. It's <laughs> so cute he's looking his foot. Okay, I'm done.
1: Yeah, so level design, uh, you know, I kind of describe it to my family that doesn't know anything about games is that it's kind of like playing with blocks or Legos as an adult where you're kind of placing down these big geo brushes and you're making the world, you're making the map. It also includes encounter design, which includes placing and scripting AIs, AI encounters, um, loot pickups, and just anything general that the player is meant to interact with will mostly end up doing that. My limit is um, at High Moon, we have this specialized um, type of gameplay engineer called Tech Designer, where they basically make all of the mechanics that we need. Ah. Recently, I was asking, you know, could we put a dumbwaiter in this level? And um, I asked one of our tech designers, like, can we steal your elevator and make it a dumbwaiter? So that's kind of what tech designers do. I kind of take the mechanics and things they make, put it into the game while also building the geo and the map around it.
2: So when you start that process, are you given kind of a a mandate or a log line from another department, or maybe a theme or a, a, some constraint like it should be to take this amount of time or, or something, or are you uh, do you start like by prototyping different different layouts and then move forward from there?
1: Yeah. So um, at High Moon, we're very like laid back about how we design things. Mm-hmm. I mostly will get like a design brief from both my um design managers and also um the other support the other studios like Treyarch or Raven or IW because we support them as a support studio mm-hmm. so ultimately the creative decisions come from them and um Activision shareholders but i it basically comes down to i get a powerpoint that's like hey we want to make a level that's set in a market mm-hmm. and you know we kind of have to work with that and we get some input from narrative design where they say hey in this market you're going to meet um one of the main characters and you kind of want to set up this you know dark mysterious atmosphere and stuff and so i basically just start um with researching if if the level itself is set in like a real world setting i'll go and google maps and start looking at that driving around um i start paper prototyping i sometimes do it um with grid paper uh physically A lot of times I've moved into using just Photoshop to just literally draw rectangles, put labels on it, and then um, I'll run those past my manager for the first couple iterations. And then once we're at a good point, um, I'll move into the editor and stop blocking that out. Mm. And um, it pretty much was just iteration from there. Once we're really happy with the geo... Um, it becomes placing the encounters and the AI and scripting them. And then from there, it's kind of iterating on both at the same time until we're happy with it. Got it.
3: Um, For the lay person such as myself, what is a geo?
1: Uh, So geo is um, basically our way of talking about um, brushes, Uh, like the uh, unity or not unity, but unreal brushes, Mm. those block brushes that you just put down its walls its floors it can even be a fountain if you model it really well but they're simple cube polygonal shapes that just help us lay out our level without getting into art because art kind of wants to do things on their own right (laughs)
0: yeah yeah i had been thinking of it as geometry i don't know if that works or not but i was
2: thinking of geography
0: Wow, okay, we're all over the place.
2: It comes from maybe one of those. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I asked. <laughs> you know. Me too, yeah. So when you're thinking about um, encounter design in the levels you create, how it seems a little chicken and egg uh, mm. to me. Um, presumably, you, you, like you say, it's a little bit laid back, so maybe it's not always the same each time. But do you generally kind of think of those in tandem, or is it really just about laying out the space first and then um, using that as your constraint to design the encounters?
1: Uh, I think it's important to design with your encounter in mind. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of working on them both in tandem. Ah. Because, you know, a level is just an empty world until you actually put encounters in it. Mm -hmm. So they both have to lean into each other. The level has to direct the player into encounters and the encounters have to fill up the geo, the world, with stuff to do. So they definitely are things that you have to do together and take into consideration every step of the way you can't just oh look at this beautiful building I made and oh I'm just gonna put AI wherever I feel like it (laughs) that doesn't work
2: (laughs) right right they'll influence each other and so they have to be kind of developed together that makes a lot of sense it also makes a lot of sense why you know you don't want it you want it to be laid out simply and not throw in a bunch of art greebles or whatever because (laughs) it just because you've designed the the layout of it doesn't mean it's going to stay that way
1: it's not worth putting in all the effort of um you know putting in all this beautiful artwork if the level isn't conducive if it the player doesn't enjoy playing it if playtests fail all that artwork was for no reason
3: Mm -hmm. oh playtests it's probably you probably playtest a ton all of your levels yes yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome that's the dream yeah (laughs) Uh, to have to have people play testing your game and like dedicated for that that's really nice I haven't gotten to that point in my career
2: yet so Ah, oh, that's wonderful when does that process start yeah like, right away before it sort before it even works or do you have like a threshold you meet before you start putting in or putting in front of yourself and then other folks
1: um, I pretty much just start playtesting as soon as I can. Like the first iteration in the engine, I'm going to compile it and run it and mm-hmm. just walk around to get a feel for it. Uh, I typically won't pull someone in until I feel like I'm ready to move on to the next step, or I feel like I'm at a place where I'm feeling a little stagnant. I don't know what needs to change, but something has to Um It also depends on fully, like, our dev pipeline, which has changed quite a bit in the last month or so. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of up in the air. But Mm -hmm. um, for the most part, you know, you want to keep people involved while you're working on it, too. You can't just trust your own judgment because everybody has their own design philosophies Mm -hmm. and their own play styles. And you kind of want to lean into all the different ways that a player could play it. So when you're talking about
0: playtesting, you're not necessarily... Just talking about, you know, end users that you might have access to, you're also making sure that your colleagues and everybody's playtesting it while you're working on it.
1: Yep, totally. I will even pull in, um, we have a new HR rep who she's never played video games really, and she's like, I want to play with you guys sometimes. I invited her to some of our vendor builds i'm like look join it like (laughs) we need as many opinions as we can get Mm -hmm. about how the game flows and how it works because that's the only way we can improve is by listening to um feedback
0: for sure for sure Playtest people.
1: <laughs>
3: we keep trying to uh, to hammer that in, and I don't know if people are listening to it yet. I'm not sure if we've mentioned it enough on the show before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we should probably do more of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wanted to, I wanted to ask about encounter design. You said that you script the AI. Um, I know you are working on Call of Duty. Um, so I imagine, I guess what I'm imagining is happening, and please correct me because I'm sure I'm wrong. Um, is you script when the enemies will come into the level at certain points in the game and also like how they um how they disperse themselves within the level or is there more to it yeah okay uh
1: there, there's a little bit more to it but um for a lot of single player scripting it is just that it's working with um info volumes and nodes and sending ai once a once the player hits a certain flag or a trigger mm-hmm. sending ai to certain volumes to certain nodes um But it also I've been working on ambient encounters lately in multiplayer, which includes Mm -hmm. just scripting the day to day stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, two soldiers sitting around a fire or a guy patrolling a building. You know, we put the patrol routes down. We set him to aggro at a certain point. We set when he spawns, when he despawns, when um, the body cleanup runs on him, if uh, reinforcements spawn behind him. It's kind of all over, but a lot of it is based on what project that we're working on. Sure. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I hadn't thought about that initially because initially just, um, just thinking about it, like that, what you were describing, Stephen, totally mm-hmm. came to mind. But what you were talking about, too, is totally a part of the experience as well. Like what happens after the player has vanquished somebody? What happens to that, you know, that... Polygon body on the ground, right. like it has to be cleaned up, and that's part of the experience too. How long is it supposed to be there, and there are lots of considerations that you gotta take and you know take into account what the player is gonna you know how long is the player gonna need the information that's represented by that character being on the ground right that kind of stuff is also part of the encounter is that that's pretty cool. I hadn't really thought about that before
1: yeah it's it's definitely a hard um area to work in because uh you want to make sure that you're cleaning up bodies and loot. As quickly as you can to optimize performance, Mm -hmm. but you also want to keep it for design and narrative purposes. So it becomes a balancing act really between what you show the player and how that affects their player experience just based on performance and optimization Mm -hmm. alone.
2: That's that's kind of eye-opening to hear how much of your work involves uh, performance optimization or, you know, keeping it in mind at least um, because... It seems like, oh, that must be the domain of another department, but it kind of can't be. Everyone has to think about it, right? Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everybody um, knows or at least is aware of some of our um, performance uh, boundaries. Mm -hmm. We can only have a certain number of AI, a certain number of arguments, a certain number of integers and stuff like so. While I don't really touch on that for the most part, it can come up if I don't optimize an encounter well. Let's say I have, instead of using an info volume to send AI to a volume, I'm sending them to individual notes. Well, that's going to be taking up a lot of data space. And when it comes down to ship time, we're going to look and go, oh my gosh, we have too much going on. It, we can't actually ship it because we're limited. So mm-hmm. we do have to think about optimizing and kind of making things as modular as we can,
0: mm-hmm.
1: even with... Um, even with being a level designer,
0: yeah, because it's not just one level. there is a lot going
1: on. Yeah, yeah exactly
0: exactly. <laughs> so how do you how do you interface with your um, with your colleagues to make sure that you're h- hitting the right balance? Like what questions are you asking from the people that you're working with to make sure you got that sweet spot?
1: Um, a lot of it is just asking, hey, how do you feel about this? Yeah. Like, can you build it, and what do you feel? And a lot of it is, you know, I think the team composition here is off, or I feel, um, you know, it's maybe too saturated with AI, dial it back a little bit. And we thankfully have some standards for the project that we're working on right now, where our ambient encounters are only one to three people um, spawning in a certain uh, POI on the map, mm-hmm. the point of interest but um sometimes with single player you don't really get those kind of limitations so you kind of go a little hog wild and then you go <laughs> okay wait we need to scale it back cuz there's like 7000 like cannon fodder enemies and then the one boss and you kind of lose the boss in that so it really comes down to design sense and game feel yeah you're relying on
0: the you know the design sense like you said of the people that you're working with and also the experience of all the people kind of collectively. That totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. I really do like that when yeah. that's an answer. Cause I think it's just like, it just makes the whole design process like so much more human.
3: I know. That's so cool. I know it's cool. <laughs> it's cool. Dang it. I'm excited for you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm awesome. excited that you're excited. She's excited.
3: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so how, how many levels do you say you would, uh, you, you yourself manage um, throughout the a uh, game? I guess um, they're it so, it. so big, so I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah. So um, I've only been at the studio for less than a year now, ah, okay. um, but I was um, leading a uh, part of a level. It was a level that was split into four smaller kind of sub-levels. Mm-hmm. Um, I was managing one of those entirely, but unfortunately um, we were taken off the project for now to ah. go work on another project with Treyarch in multiplayer. Okay. So, um, I'm kind of right now leading the charge on the ambient encounters in half of that map, which is, I think, 13 POIs. Um, so I I do get my hands in everything, and I think that's mm-hmm. one of the biggest benefits of working at a COD support studio is that we get to touch every single COD game that mm-hmm. comes out. We mm-hmm. work on Warzone, we work on Modern Warfare, we work on Black Ops, we work on Zombies. Uh, we really get our hands into all these different variations of design and design philosophy that's fascinating really, really cool.
3: i i guess i had always gotten the impression that most of the empo- and in big studios AAA studios most of the employees work on like real specific aspects of the game and they don't other than like you know their managers making sure that everything combines well they don't really get to um spread out and explore other aspects of the game so it's really interesting for me to hear that that is not the case at least at, at least at where you're working now, that's not the case. That's cool. Yeah,
1: it it's really cool because um, even right now our project is multiplayer, but we just got word from Activision Publishing that we're going to be allowed as a studio to lead to campaign levels of oh, nice. it. So cool. we get to go back to single player um, in a little bit just to work on that. And again, you just kind of get to bounce around and touch everything. And wow. I think that is so much fun
2: yeah
0: yeah that... i wonder
2: i wonder how much of that is um uh helped by the fact that you are a support studio mm. so you have to be flexible to the needs of the project and maybe a little bit more nimble than mm. the the um the originating studio uh needs to be does that is that would you say that's right or am i off on that
1: one? no i would say you're 100 percent right on that i think um you know i interviewed with infinity Ward and um At the same time that I was interviewing with High Moon, ironically. But um, I ultimately chose High Moon because I got a more varied um, experience with the COD franchise. And Mm -hmm. it is very true that you know Infinity Ward focuses on Modern Warfare. Treyarch focuses on zombies. Raven focuses on Black Ops. Sledgehammer focuses on the World War II, the historical games. Mm -hmm. While our support studios, Demonware, Beanox, Toys for Bob, High Moon... We get to touch all of it. We touch Warzone. We touch um zombies, mm-hmm. uh, modern warfare. Uh, oh gosh, w- Vanguard. We worked on. I mean, we've literally gotten to work on every single thing, and that you wouldn't get that at one of the big three studios, Treyarch, wow. Raven, or IW. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: you, I mean, it sounds it, it sounds so obviously attractive to to mm-hmm. to work with on a support studio, uh, maybe it doesn't have the prestige of the the first logo up, up when you boot it up, but being able to touch it, especially as an individual contributor, is probably really really rewarding compared to an individual contributor at Treyarch or at Sledgehammer.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like um, at High Moon, I'm afforded more of an option to take control of a section of the game and be able to point to it when it ships and go I made that yeah While that's not necessarily the case at one of the big three studios Mm
3: -hmm. Mm. just to be able to do (laughs) that I keep (laughs) fanboying I'm sorry
0: (laughs) (laughs) how did you get into level design and encounter design like as a career path what brought you to this place
1: um so I got my degree in computer design animation and game design from Kent State University mm. and uh one of my professors was Chris Totten at the time and ah. oh that guy he, <laughs> we yeah. interviewed him too he <laughs> had him on the show <laughs> he put on a talk by met um Potifant Anderson at IO Interactive about the level design of Hitman and how they um stratified each level into like low alerts medium alerts and like high alerts and how it was socially stratified and lead into both psychology and sociology like for example you know you can't have a gun out in a church on the sapienza um, (laughs) level in hitman because that would be against social mores Mm -hmm. um and i just thought it was fascinating i thought this is the coolest thing because it's taking the things we look at in social sciences i was originally an anthropology major Mm. Um, So we're taking these things where we're looking at how society is structured, how we interact, how we're expected to act in certain behaviors. And it's applying it to the game. It's making the mechanics. I mean, I I remember telling Chris, I mean, level design isn't just maps. It's not just making buildings and maps all day. It's literally making the majority of the game. Mm -hmm. And even in subtle ways, if you're just saying, hey, look, you're in a bank, you can't pull out a gun. It's this discipline that touches everything and chris really fostered my interest in it would send me gdc talks all the time and i actually got to talk to met potafin anderson on twitter so like she was kind of one of my mentors along with chris the whole time and i just kind of started building my own levels i was working on um, paper prototypes a lot Um, i made a lot of hitman-esque deus ex kind of styled levels because I absolutely love social stealth games. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. Um then I started working in um Unreal and making levels and uh, Unity. It was just something I just kind of fell naturally into. I grew up, you know, I was always playing The Sims and I was always building houses. And at one point I was the leading residential lot creator on the Sims 2 Exchange when I was like nine. <laughs> That's awesome. And so like it's always it's always been something I've loved. If a game gives me a chance to build a world, like Fallout 4's crafting systems or um you know, I used to I had this architecture software as a kid that I would just build houses in because I thought it was fascinating. I thought it was a game. It was not a game. It was like professional software, but <laughs> still like I've just always always building worlds and so it came very naturally to me where i'm like yes this is what i want to do this is the coolest thing on the planet yeah
0: that's really cool like you you basically started doing it when you were a kid and then you thought you wouldn't you didn't think about it as like a career and then you found your way to it it does kind of sound like it was meant to be
1: yeah it was uh, i changed my major about four times um i ended up joining the military um getting injured in the military and leaving it and you know i was at this very very low point in my life and my advisor asked me she's like well what do you actually want to do i'm like i want to make games i really just want to make games and Mm -hmm. she brought up that hey we have this um major that's at a satellite campus that it's kind of hard to get into it and the classes aren't really offered very often on the main campus but like it is an option and i switched into that that day like i yes there was no hesitation (laughs) so (laughs) and it's like i look back and i've really just been all about world building. I'd be playing with Lego sets as a kid. I was always building houses and Mm -hmm. even playing with blocks and Lincoln logs. Like it, it kind of seems like it was my destiny in a weird way. Yeah. That's cool. It also sounds like you had
0: like some supportive people around you as as well. You know, like I could have totally imagined an advisor being like, yeah, but really, (laughs) you know, I'm glad that that person didn't do that and actually encourage you to like
1: chase it. That's really cool. Yeah. Our, our staff Um, for my major program are the kindest, sweetest people that are so, so, so supportive. Like I couldn't have done any of it without them. That's awesome.
2: You know, I think uh, thinking about your story about like where you started and, and like playing with Legos as a kid, I'm like, well, that is a lot of people's experience, but I think you are different in that I, what I'm hearing through the whole tale of it is like, you're describing space as story, it's not just space, and hearing in that—that's part of the appeal to you, and part of how you the lens through you see it. So, talk a little bit about that as you as you're putting together a layout or designing encounters or pacing things out. How to—and I don't necessarily mean like the narrative of the of the single player campaign, but just the the movement through a level, and how do you think about that as you design, and how what what's the, I mean, like you ask or no, a novelist, do you start at the beginning or do you start at the end? Do you start in the middle? I guess I'm just asking that sort of same sort of question about the story of the space you're making.
1: Yeah. So um, I think a level can really be thought of as I, I kind of think of it more as a movie or a show. You mm-hmm. know, you kind of um, you know, I was working on a museum level once and it was kind of like you had this you started off in this gorgeous uh, courtyard. And, you know, it's very calm. There's nothing going on. There's no um, enemy AI. There's nothing really to alarm you. And you go into the museum and it's this big, beautiful lobby and you see off in the corner, there's a vent that you can access and get into. And there's also a glass wall that, you know, you have a prompt that you can shatter it and stuff. So you kind of start to get the little story elements very subtly. And you would leave the lobby either through going through the vent or through the window or through the main doors, um, which required kind of a loud uh, way of accessing it because they were locked. But, (laughs) you know, um, but you kind of you you left that and you ended up in this great big hall full of, you know, priceless artifacts and stuff. And there's enemies patrolling everywhere and further down the hall, you could see this big beautiful window and in there was the main target the boss of the level and it's kind of I kind of think of it as kind of like the basic three act story structure when I think of a level because you want to introduce your character to what they're getting themselves into you want to introduce them to the map you also want to give them little breadcrumbs of hey there's something I can do here there's a story here Mm -hmm. and then you kind of want to have the big exposition the big shootout the big you know rescue the hostages thing and then kind of a c- conclusion at the end where you leave it whether that's through the main door or by taking out the um, taking out the target itself like it it has a very structured story like cadence to it
0: it does which... you know I've never really thought about it that way but it totally does right the first thing you do when you're going into this virtual space is you're trying to just get your bearings you have an right. idea of what you're trying to accomplish, but you don't know how you're going to accomplish it. And as you make sense, then you get to kind of like phase two, which is like you start doing the thing and then you do the thing and then you got to get out.
1: <laughs> yep. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And that first thing you described, like that vent in the corner that catches the player's attention. That's like the inciting incident, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's where you go from observer <sighs> to participant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. That, that, that's an interesting moment that I hadn't really considered as a way to judge whether a level is successful or not. But it seems like a pretty good rule of thumb. Like, to look for that moment. Yeah. Because um, I, I I would bet that you'd find it in the most successful levels.
0: Like, I'm going to think about levels in a totally different way now. When I'm, like, just playing games I've never really thought about the level design, like, before in that way, I'm going to definitely think, like, okay, Gato robato. I'm opening the room. I'm walking in the room. Okay. Shooting the, th- you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what would this be? How would you describe this?
2: Yeah.
3: Yep. It is kind of fascinating when, you know, you start making games, you it's very difficult for myself to like turn off my game dev brain when I'm playing games now. Mm -hmm. So like, I'll just be like, Oh, that that's an interesting design choice they made there. Or, Oh, I, I can see why that bug happened or something. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: (laughs) I know why that vent's there. I know what that vent's trying to say. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah, there's a genre savviness that a lot of us develop as, as moviegoers, mm-hmm. and it doesn't, it doesn't mean that we don't appreciate – like a trope comes up and you kind of know where they're going, yeah. but you can still kind of enjoy it. Right. And there's that fine line you have to you – know, as a creator, you have to decide like how much to let the, the viewer or participant use their own knowledge to help navigate this thing versus how much am I there to surprise and, and challenge them. And it feels very – sounds like it's the same problems getting a level you you know you don't want someone coming in and not knowing how doors work in this game right and make that the challenge when to get to that inciting incident have will go first go through a door um mm. but you also don't want it to be like every game they've ever played before it, it, that, that balance has got to be and also the, the players tastes too some right. some do want it to feel exactly like the last thing they played and you want to make sure that those people aren't you know scared away but the people who are you know ready for a new thing you have to make sure there's something there for them too. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, especially for Call of Duty, you have to design for such a wide audience of people who are interested in very different things. Yeah. And so it, yeah, the, the analogies to movie making, they more and more keep popping up in my head.
1: Yeah, I, and I think there's something to be said about tropes in video games too. I mm-hmm. think that, you know, you can lean into these things that people know, like, you know, red barrels explode. Yeah. Know, right. yeah. that's been a thing since... Oh my gosh, like Half-Life, I think it was the first time I encountered that. And that's still something we use today. And I think that you can lean into these kind of expectations that players have to really create a good level without making it too predictable. I think the best level design is level design that you don't think about.
2: Yeah, right? Because
1: if you start to get frustrated in a level, you're thinking, but why is this designed this way? This is horrible. I'm lost. Where am I going? What am I doing? A good level will tell you and show you without, you know, holding your hand the whole time. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you might feel you might feel
0: challenged, but you're challenged by you feel challenged in a way that's still immersive rather than challenged yeah. in a way that takes you out of the immersion. Totally. Okay.
3: Nicegames.club slash feedback talked about it on the show several times before but I want y'all to hear it again nice games.club slash feedback please give us feedback we love feedback
0: especially <laughs> Stephen this
3: is not a joking matter. yes yeah I nervously laugh all the time I'm sorry
0: <laughs> why are you nervous I, be-
3: I don't know because
0: just, you're worried people will give us feedback it's really important I think
3: I, yeah it's very important and as a result I'm scared that people won't give us feedback and it makes me laugh you know, people
0: do give us feedback though yeah
3: they do they do they do give us feedback they yeah. give us. Um, one thing that somebody told us is that more Star Trek references are always good. Um, good feedback. Pound it, Mark. Pound it. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> fine. If you want to give us more feedback, like more Star Trek references, um, please go to nicegames.club slash feedback and let us know. um i i want to hear more about um encounter design and specifically like how the encounters help progress that story that narrative that you're trying to get the across to the player
1: so the encounters can actually like really lean into showing the player the story by you know um team composition is one of them that i really like using you know if you know you're going into a cqc kind of situation Mm. um you know, so you're going to have someone with a shotgun or short range arms. Uh, you're also going to have different levels of AI. So, you know, you might have street police officers, then you'll have paramilitary or cartel then you'll have military and then you'll have like the juggernaut kind of bosses so you kind of tell the player you know this is an area that you're relatively safe in because there's low level enemies here and then it gets higher and higher and higher and it tells the player I'm reaching a conclusion I'm reaching Mm -hmm. a spot where the story is going to advance Um, just by AI composition alone it can really help and it also helps with placement too you know something i always do whenever i'm lost in a game is okay where's the next enemy right because the (laughs) enemies are like little breadcrumbs and they're telling Uh you hey go this way so that is still something we lean into with um encounter design is that we kind of need to still tell players where to go occasionally and enemies are a great way to do it you know you it's against uh you know Common sense, but you kind of want to run towards the people shooting you in video games. So, yeah,
3: because <laughs> yeah. it leads you to the next thing. The next yeah. thing you're supposed yep. to go to. It does make sense. And, and what you're describing to me reminds me of like a uh, basic interest curve. Like your your interest will go. I'm making a drawing in the, in the air. People can't see this. It's a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you yes, I... <laughs> audio audio medium. Uh huh. Um. Um. But the, the interest curve, uh, the base interest curve, you know, where things become more interesting. As you progress further, partly because like the player has a better understanding of things and can handle more stuff, but also to hold their attention more um, up to the climate. Um, So that makes a lot of sense. And I guess I hadn't really thought about it um, in that way. But yeah, like, you know, fighting big juggernauts with a ton of armor and stuff and you need to, you know, shoot them a lot in order to take them down and, and still having to deal with all these other enemies really adds intensity to an encounter in a way that's really cool.
2: When you were describing like the different types of enemies, yeah. when you're working on a project um, that has the, those things all figured out, then you know the language of the game as well as the player will eventually learn it. But I imagine there are scenarios where that stuff isn't finalized yet. Um, in, uh-huh. in which case, how do you sort of design for that feeling even though the parts may change along the way. Like that iterative process that happens outside your control.
1: Mm -hmm. So a lot of times we'll use placeholders because of the way that Call of Duty is set up, you know, a lot of people seem to think that you can just copy and paste an AI from one con game to the other, and that's not at all how it works. Like our games mm-hmm. are not very interchangeable when it comes to our assets, so we'll typically just cobble together a project standard in the time being and be like, "Look, use this particular enemy asset to stand in for Juggernauts or for Tier Three um, enemy types." Mm-hmm. Although sometimes that can be quite difficult because you're not necessarily getting the same feel or the same amount of damage um, as you would want to get out of a juggernaut or um, you know a certain weapon Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's all prototype Um, for the most part like games are always going to be ugly for like 90% of their development (laughs) so you just kind of have to like internally be like okay but imagine once we (laughs) get the AI that we need like this will work out
2: it it must be a challenge to like know that there's a mechanics you want to exploit, but you can't you can't fully realize them right now. Right. Uh, especially when you know when you t- that example you gave earlier about um uh, about r- requests into to get new mechanics mm. or variations on mechanics. Um. Do you find that you have to sort of decide this is an area where I just need to resign myself to the imperfection until it rolls along, or it's risen to the point where I need to actually go and make sure that I get something from somebody else to make this work. Um, how do you how do you make that decision?
1: Um, so throughout the process, it's kind of like there are certain areas that will be both at the same time, where it's mm. kind of like okay, I need this, but I'm okay with it being a little janky right now. Typically, it's kind of like once we reach a certain point, you know, certain milestones, certain goals for the team and for the project, where it's like okay, we're moving out of we're moving out of prototype, we're moving into green light. Um, you know, this is going to be seen by corporate. We need to make this a little cleaner. We can't use the hacks. That's when I would typically go, okay, I need you to make this mechanic and get it working. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, for the most part, High Moon is very, very accommodating for those kind of demands. Typically, designers don't really get to make that many demands of engineers, but um, our studio does do a lot of work for our designers. And Mm -hmm. if I say, hey, look, I need a stealth mechanic or a disguise mechanic there, we will be able to get a cobbled together version within a week at the most. And then a clean version within a couple weeks after that. So it's just kind of learning to work with what you have and then making it a bit better as you go along. That totally makes sense.
3: That reminds me of my job a lot. (laughs) I'm the only programmer at at, uh, where I work at future club. Um, and so, like, designers and artists will sometimes ask me for tools. Um, and you would be like, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm never like, no, that's probably a problem. <laughs> I'll be like, this will be a lot of work, but I'll try. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should say no more often. I don't know. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's cool to hear that, like, you know, it, you you both work in tandem in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I mean, you're, you're, you're making demands quote unquote on 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 programmers per se but it's not like they they have the you know the ability to be like this is too difficult but also i don't think you're like actively trying to push them to work themselves to death or anything like that yeah i can hear that in your voice so Mm -hmm. yeah that's cool we
1: we work very well together and i think that Mm -hmm. studio composition and also like just studio policies when it comes to just being nice to each other and teamwork is a huge proponent of that because I wouldn't get through my work day without uh, my two tech designers who are like my best friends. They started a week before I did and they helped me with all my onboarding stuff. So it's we really foster this family feel here, which can sometimes be a red flag with studios when they say, yeah. oh, we're a family <laughs> and you don't get any time off. But no, that's definitely not the case with High Moon. We are straight up a family. I, if I forget how to print lines in the engine they're not going to say hey you're an idiot you're bad at your job They're just, oh yeah here you go like it's mm-hmm. very much so a, a great place for me to grow and learn and mm-hmm. it's somewhere i want to stay as long as possible that's awesome
2: yeah i wonder how much of that is uh, helped by the fact that you are flexible you get to touch all around and so everyone naturally knows a little bit about what everyone else does right. so there's more empathy perhaps
0: that's really interesting like i've heard of um, manufacturing. Facilities doing that kind of thing and probably yeah, yeah, like I I actually worked in a manufacturing facility for a couple months um, while I was between careers and it was building tanks. Sure, <laughs> it was seems sort, like a you kind of thing super <laughs> not that it oh, was okay. about as far as you can get from explosions. Mm-hmm. Uh. Uh, it was like food a food processing facility, mm-hmm. oh, okay, but and there were lots of different roles right and one of the things they would need they wanted everyone to do was they'd rotate you every like half an hour forty five minutes. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason they did that is because of like repetitive stress injury and <laughs> No matter what you're doing in game design, it's right here on a computer. right? <laughs> right. So that's not going to be much. Uh, uh, it's not going to really make much of a difference. Yeah, you're going to get it either way. <laughs> you're going to get it no matter what. Um, but it also had a really great effect in that it did give everyone on, that was working on this floor, all like 45, 50 people at a time, experience in all the different spots along this line. So they understood that if you didn't put the toast in right, then it would screw that thing up down the line. And you might be there in three hours So like, and everyone will have to be there longer, you know? So like, it did really, I think that approach can be really helpful. Uh, I'm not sure how much that specifically translates to like the production pipeline on a AAA game. But when it comes to the support studio relationship to the game content that you were talking about, Nina, I can can see a connection for sure. Mm. I don't know. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think that our ability to touch and see kind of everything is one of our strongest suits when it comes to, hey, we know you know this is going to cause a problem for art or for lighting down the road. We need to find a solution right now, fix up our design work, fix up our tech design work, and make it easier for them. I think that's something very unique, and it's not what I expected out of a AAA studio. I figured I would work very siloed, very much so. I make issues and just send them off and someone else fixes them. But <laughs> no, we kind of all learn... To work together. I, Our production and our IT as well as our tech designers are all there to support us for technical issues and software issues, even though it's not technically anybody outside of IT's job. But mm-hmm. production and tech designers are there to kind of pick up where IT might not be able to because they're a little... There's only four for a 200-person studio, so it's a lot of work for them. So, <laughs> yeah, it's... And, you know, even... I went through onboarding a week before one of my um, level design coworkers, and I ended up writing my own onboarding documents for him. Like, this is oh. what helped me. These are the shortcuts that I know. These are the bugs I ran into. This is how to fix it and stuff. Mm-hmm. And High Moon really fosters that culture of mm-hmm. just lend a hand.
2: It's interesting that you just you tell that story because you know you've been, you've praised the the people you work with, but you're describing not just being a part of that collaborative supportive community but contributing to that directly Mm -hmm. as a matter of course and I think that's it helps that you're inspired to do it but it also requires you to do it so like good on you for making sure that that is part of the culture there yeah I think everybody like that's something that I think people get frustrated by like oh my workplace is, you know, the culture is really rough there, and it's like, well, you do, you are part of that, yeah. And so it's always helpful to examine that and make sure that you know that you're doing as much as you can and no more, <laughs> uh, to, to, you know, to contribute to that. So it's very interesting that you were telling that, like, right off the bat, you were like, "This seems like a place that supports everybody." So I guess I should be doing
0: that. Yeah, the culture's yeah. strong enough that you felt like comfortable pitching in on week two or whatever. Yeah,
1: yeah. and I, uh, you know, I've only been here for less than a year, and, um our beloved one of our animators left and she was in charge of the women's network and the DEI and i network, the diversity, equity, and inclusion network. And she's like, mm-hmm. look, you're the only one who shows up to everything. Do you want to take over it? And I, I did. It's very intimidating being the representative for my studio for the greater ABK employee networks, but yeah. it is so fulfilling because that's what we need to do. We need mm-hmm. someone to step in and I did it. And it's because High Moon has fostered such a great culture of just lending a hand, helping out where you need to, that I was able to do that because if this if it was any other studio, I'd probably be like, Absolutely not. I'm terrified. <laughs> <laughs> I like cannot do that. Sorry. But I went from within six months of being here, I having one on one meetings with our studio head talking about D E and I issues and uh women's network initiatives and stuff and it's our culture that really, really helps foster these conversations. That's really cool.
0: Yeah, fantastic. That's like a whole separate interview you might have to have you back on to talk about. <laughs> Although I don't think we're quite done with this one.
2: Yeah, well, I, I love when we have someone on like, this is gonna be great. And then like, you know, halfway through you drop a, oh, but I'm also really interesting in this other way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, can you stay on for another five hours? <laughs> um, actually, I wanted to ask you about Something that came up just a couple minutes ago, we were talking about the, um, you know, the way that having a support studio approach to different work might influence the culture and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to kind of pivot back to the level design and encounter design question. And I'm curious to hear you talk about how being able to work on lots of different projects and different parts of this franchise influences your approach to level design and encounter design right cuz there are some there's like some spiritual similarities between the different projects that you're probably working on but on the other hand they are like really critical differences as well otherwise they wouldn't be different games right. so like what what how, what do you think about that when you're switching your brain from one project to the next how do you approach that
1: um so i was actually super super lucky to be hired when um we were starting work on a open world kind of non-linear um project mm-hmm. so I definitely leaned into that because that's my favorite type of game. It's nonlinear gameplay. I love Deus Ex. I love um, Hitman. I love all these games that let me explore the world and use the world to my advantage. And so I got to really open my mindset to both the Call of Duty franchise because I was completely new to it when I started uh, here. I had maybe played Black Ops for like five minutes and... Hated it so. Um, <laughs> with, I was playing multiplayer with my brother, and he just kept spawn killing me. And I'm like, you know oh, what? This isn't fun. I'm going back mean. to playing the Sim. So it's more like but, hated your brother in that moment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Fair. But um, like I really got to explore um the Call of Duty franchise, and you know we talk about a lot the Call of Duty formula of hmm. linear gameplays, and I got to explore the franchise in a completely new light as mm-hmm. an open world project, and. We've shifted more um, from a single-player project to a multiplayer project, which brought on its own unique challenges that you have to think about, you know, the game is uh, perpetual. Mm -hmm. What brings players back? What is the loop here? Why are they playing it? They're not just playing it for a linear narrative. They're playing it to grind, to earn certain things, to find certain things. I think, like, there is significant overlap between every cod title because it wouldn't be cod without that but i think yeah. that there's also a lot of freedom and elasticity in the way that you design for them both for all of it yeah it sounds like a really fun challenge from a like from a designer's perspective to
0: keep the stuff that needs to be the same the same while also changing the things that need to be different that's like yeah. a fascinating. I mean it's one of those great design brain problems where you have to find again the right level of balance.
2: Yeah, there's so many stakeholders uh, including players that like are going to that, that are evaluate the work that you do and so it needs to there's expectations that are so high to be the same in some ways and different in other ways and d- depending on the person you're asking those things might not always be the same. But also to throw in there your own creative uh, perspective and to put that in there and make sure that it's it doesn't overwhelm but also isn't uh overwhelmed by. So it's it's a, a I think it's a bigger challenge than than other franchises. I can just just hearing you describe all that stuff it's having to keep that all in your head it must be it must be rewarding when it's going well <laughs> because it's su- cuz it's probably it's such a successful high wire act, right?
1: Yeah, totally. Um you know there'll be times when we're in brainstorming sessions i'm like oh this would be a great idea and they're like yeah our players will absolutely hate that no no like, okay well i thought it was a good idea but okay we'll scrap that but you know um high moon just released um fortunes keep on warzone and i'm not on the warzone team but i'm very close with a lot of people on the warzone team and it is getting so much praise and mm-hmm. It it is it feels so good to just read these things. You know, mm-hmm. it's not often that you get people being excruciatingly nice about COD games. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, every single person I've talked to has been like, "Fortunes Keep is the best." I'm having a blast with you guys, knocked out of the park, and like, it feels so rewarding, even not being on the team. That we have the talent and the studio ability to create. New experiences in COD and still manage to please, you know, the long-term franchise fans. Yeah, that is really cool.
2: You mentioned earlier about uh, working with the different departments, and that's a big part, I think, of the lessons learned for listeners today. What we haven't touched on yet is uh, the visual design, the art Mm, team. Yeah, and we talked initially about how you basically have to, you know, you have to kind of leave them for later, but they do eventually show up and start adding things right and but at the same time because you're laying out these layouts it's it's a you are also part of the visual art team in a way and um i'm a when it comes to like film uh, visuals i'm a very big proponent of composition like Mm -hmm. where things exist next on the frame and that's so true in a a layout for a level and you walk through a doorway what do you see on the left what do you see on the right? right how much of the thing on the left do you see and that is something that visual artists are really attuned to and they contribute to but you're the first person who touches that part of it so how's that relationship between the art team because logistically it's probably i would guess it's the most separated from the other teams just by necessity but how much are you able to work with them back and forth and how much of a how much inspiration do you get from them to put into your layouts or is there just not enough time for the that level of uh, collaboration
1: um so we're actually lucky that we're moving away from you know the call of duty every year um model Mm -hmm. where we're going to start having a bit more time between title releases so we do get a lot more time and art has produced vignettes for us um the courtyard vignette that i mentioned earlier for the museum level Mm -hmm. was actually straight up just completely made by art and i based Ah. my my design of the museum around the art vignette and you know we have a lot of conversations back and forth with art if i say hey look this pillar has to be here for composition purposes art will art will mostly work (laughs) with us on that um but there are some times where i'm like hey you know i really imagined this wall being kind of brick kind of old and they're like no you don't know anything about it, let <laughs> us it. And that's totally valid because I'm not an artist. So like I'll take I'll take their opinion on it. But um no, we have a great working relationship with art. There are times that um there'll be like an X model or something with uh, non manifold geometry that will just completely break the game and you know, I go crying to the artists and the animators. I'm like, please help me <laughs> fix it. And <laughs> they they will always, always help out with design. And they're always very willing to listen to our ideas. We're always very willing to listen to their ideas. It's mm-hmm. it's not the typical antagonistic relationship that a lot of people think exists between design and art. It really goes hand in hand.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, my pessimism on that was really just about logistics, but it's really yeah. exciting to hear that you're able to like, you're able to get a piece of an asset from art and then that can inspire you in your layouts mm-hmm. and i think we you know we had a question on here that we've been circling the whole hour which is you know what inspires you what uh, what gets you going and it we've heard examples of it coming from all sorts of different places right. not just one place it's not it's not a rote uh, production uh, you know uh, process each time mm-hmm. and that's like that's like electric mm-hmm. i love yeah. that
0: yeah there's space for you to play As a designer, like, and there's space for you to discover as a designer, even though you're plugged into all these other groups, they also get the same kind of freedom because you guys have enough space in terms of time and culture to be able to talk to each other, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, and iterate with your designs and ideas off of one another. That's how you want it to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good Uh, lesson for
2: folks who, you know, listening who work in any field is like seek out that relationship with other departments, or, or or you know you're on any team with another person that has different disciplines than you do. It may seem like extra work for you to also be thinking about what they're doing and them also thinking about what you're doing, but it will improve the your process, both going both ways.
0: Well, it'll save you from having to redo stuff in the future, and also save you from frustration, which is like yeah, pretty frustrating. Well, frustration <laughs> is frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's that. <laughs> Sorry, and you know what we you going to say? No, Hopefully something that fine. isn't as like straightforward as frustrating <laughs> is frustrating.
1: Um no, I just wanted to say that um you know a lot of people say the best inspiration for level design is getting out and experiencing the world and I think that mm-hmm. that applies both to our working relationships inter-studio and with our players is that you know just looking at levels and taking inspiration from levels is fine. I think, you know, if you really like a level in a game, you can emulate that. That's a great idea. But I think your best experiences come from the littlest things. Um, you know, I designed an entire level that was a nuclear power plant. Um, I, I'm i certified uh, by FEMA in radiological emergency management as well as... Um, like management of nuclear power plants wow. so fascinated wow. by them <laughs> yeah that's really cool <laughs> but um like i've taken a lot of my education in the design of nuclear power plants and applied it to level design and uh-huh. you know people look at architecture people look at um, amusement parks they look at city parks pools um, neighborhoods you know it, your inspiration comes from everywhere and i think. Mm-hmm you become a better teammate when you kind of branch out and let all these worldly experiences influence your work as well instead of just thinking oh video games video games video games that's great but you also have to live your life in order to be a really good team member and a really good creator
0: Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah.
3: well because it's like you said earlier um you know these games don't just take place in a void like when when a player comes into a level they're using their knowledge outside of the game um and from previous games to help them get through this level um, and so like having that extra experience outside of outside of games helps you design something that is intuitive for people even if they aren't experiencing call of duty or aren't experiencing in in, in other games so that totally makes sense a fully fleshed out life creates a better game developer <laughs>
1: 100.
3: <laughs> I mean, it's easier said than done, though, because you know it, it's also a job yeah. so You well, only to... got 24
0: hours, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, Nina, where can our listeners find you on the internet?
1: Um, so I'm on Twitter at uh, Mrs. Chief Seven. Um, I was obsessed with uh, Master Chief when I was a kid, so understandable. 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 <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll share that with our uh, listeners on our
0: show notes page. And if you've got more questions for Nina about level design and encounter design or her cat, <laughs> you will know where to find her. That's our show. For show notes and links on today's conversation, go to our website, NiceGames.club. Visit us on Twitter at NiceGamesClub, where Dale tweets about game dev resources and food pixels. We like hearing from you, so tweet back. Or email us, contact at NiceGames.club. Nice Games Club is on Patreon. Support the show and get stuff. Sign up at patreon.com slash nicegamesclub. And if you want to keep things more casual, just stop by nicegames.club slash discord and say hello. Next week, we'll be looking at open source workflows and designing for groups. But that's it for this week. So
2: until we start again, remember to
0: play nice and make nice. Frustration is frustrating. <laughs> I told myself at the beginning of the episode I was going to not make dumb jokes, well. but I just said a dumb thing instead. <laughs>